Good evening. John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. fell in love with the church about 10 years ago in the jungles of sub-Saharan Africa. Now I know that seems like a very odd place to fall in love with the church, but it took me being isolated and alone on a cot in a tent among a tribe of about 300 people who did not know the gospel to learn what it means to actually love the body of Christ. You see, I grew up in the church. Uh, my family went to church every single Sunday, but I did not like the church. I had a hard time with it. I felt like it was a very archaic, ritualistic kind of thing, really filled with judgmental, hypocritical people. And so I really, I rejected the church. And I'll tell you, even after I came to Saving Faith, the Lord got a hold of me when I was in high school. I still did not like the church. Though I love Jesus Christ, I did not love his church. And at times I felt embarrassed to be a Christian. It felt awkward at times to be a part of a worship service. And I'll tell you in college later, when I first felt called to ministry, I still did not love the church. And you think, how is that possible? How could somebody who wants to be a pastor not love the people of God? I'll tell you a secret. It exists more often than you think. And I must confess to you all tonight that honestly, because I did not love the church is actually why I wanted to be a pastor. In my arrogance, I wanted to change the church. I thought it needed to be different, needed to be more relevant. I wanted to change the church to look the way that I thought it should be. Have you ever wanted to do that? Have you ever wished the church was different? That it looked a little differently than you thought it would be or should be? That's where I was. And so I graduated from college. I'd accepted a job, a ministry job, a pastoral role as a worship director of a church up in Frisco. And the summer before I started that job, there I was in Cameroon in a jungle reading the scriptures, thinking about all the ways that I was going to build up this church really in my image, right? 
change the things that I didn't like about church music or the way that worship happens and having all of these ideas and suddenly God just hit me right in the heart. And I realized I had not a clue about what the church really is. I had it all wrong. The church is not an institution. It's not a service. The church is not a building. It's not this thing that we attend. It's not a social club or a gathering. That summer, I realized that the church is a people, more specifically, that the church is a bride, the bride of Christ. And I had spent the first really five years of being a Christian bad-mouthing his bride. And I learned that if you're going to bad-mouth a bride, you better be careful who the husband is. (laughs) We worship a God who loves his church. And though we are, as his church, are so broken Though we are unfaithful, he is exceedingly faithful. Though we are an adulterous bride, he sent us the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, to lay his life down for his people, for his church. And tonight, to really begin to understand who the church is and what we have been called to be as his church, we're going to look at Jesus' own words. His prayer, the end of the high priestly prayer, just before he goes to the cross, And in this very last few verses of his prayer, we find his prayer for his people, for the church. And in his prayer, this is what I want you to see tonight. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to know. That the church is a people united together in Jesus Christ. We are called to be united together because of Jesus Christ. We're going to see this in four ways in Jesus' prayer. The first way is this, that the church is a people united together in community. Second, the church is a people united together in work. Third, the church is a people united together in worship. And the last thing that we will see tonight is that the church is a people united together in Jesus Christ. The first thing, The church is a people united together in community. This is what Jesus says. If you want to look at your bulletin, Jesus prays in verse 20. This is what he says. He says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his disciples. He's just finished praying for his disciples. But then he moves on, not only for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's us. All those who will open up the word of God and believe in Jesus through the words of the apostles, everyone who will come after these men from generation to generation to generation. Jesus, he's praying for you. He's praying for me. He says, all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they will be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for his church. And what is he praying for? He's praying that his people, the church, would be so united together that we would be one in the same way that he is one with the Father. 
Now, I want you to think about that. How intimately connected would you say that Jesus is with the Father? He's the Son, and they're also the Trinity. You cannot get more intimately connected than that. And here Jesus is, he's saying, I pray that my people, the church, would be so unified together that it would be a reflection of the same way that I am united to you. That is a staggering prayer. So of all the things that Christ could have prayed for, right before he goes to the cross, right before he dies, why of all things would he pray that we would be unified? Now, if you've taken the new members class in the last few years, you've heard me talk about a woman named Anne Rice. A writer wrote an interview with a vampire. In 2010, she came out. She was a Christian. She was an atheist first, became a Christian, but back in 2010, she came out, and this is what she said. She said, I quit being a Christian. I no longer want to be associated with this quarrelsome, hostile group. And she went on to say that though Christ is central to my life, following Christ does not mean following his followers. Though she called herself a Christian, she quit the church. More recently, another writer, a writer who had a huge impact on me early in my Christian faith, Donna Miller, also came out and admitted that he rarely attends church. And much different than Rice, for Rice, she just couldn't be around all these people, right? They just rubbed her the wrong way. But for him, he just admitted, I really can't get a lot out of music. I don't get a lot out of singing songs. I don't really get out a lot out of some guy lecturing at me. That's just not my deal. And so I really don't attend church. And he went on to even argue that most of the influential Christians that he knows in the public sector, other than pastors, of course, did not regularly attend church. And they're not alone. We're seeing more and more people kind of practice a new kind of Christianity cafeteria Christianity. You pick and choose the parts of a church that you like. I like the preaching over here and the music over here and a Bible study over here. I just want these different parts and I can kind of custom tailor my own little plate of what it means to be a Christian. Now what I want you to see tonight is this isn't just an, a phenomenon in the church, but this is actually very indicative of the culture that we live in. We live in a very isolated individualistic culture. There's a social scientist at Harvard, Robert Putnam, and he did a study and he noted that now, unusually so, in our American society, you don't have the kind of social gatherings that you once had. Things like neighborhood parties, right? The uh, unasked for kindness of strangers at a supermarket or the shared pursuit of a public good rather than a private pursuit of goods for yourself. And he recognized that this is a new phenomenon. With each generation, it's exponentially increasing. We're coming more and more individualistic. And so the question for us tonight, really for us as a people, is in an individualistic, isolated society, can you be a Christian and not be a part of the church? 
Can you be a Christian and not participate in the community of Christ? And the short answer to that question is this. No. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that in order to become a Christian to be saved, you must have a certain check mark of attendance. That's not what I'm talking about. But if Christ came for a people, for a bride, to fulfill a promise given long ago to a man named Abraham, fulfilled one day when every tribe and tongue and nation will worship together, that means that he did not come to save just individuals. But he came to save a people, a church. And whether you like it or not, if you are a Christian tonight, you are a part of the church. That's what you are. And that's what you've been called to. You've been called to participate as a Christian in the community of God. Now at this church, at PCPC, we ask all of our members to take vows. And it printed in your bulletin, I think it may be on the last page, you see those membership vows printed there. I want you to look at them. Go ahead. If you'll notice, the first three vows, if you read over them, have to do with your relationship to God. But the last two have to do with your relationship to the church. How are you called to relate to the church? Now, tonight, you might be a member here. Some of you might not be members here. But I would argue that all five of these questions are relevant to you as a believer in Jesus. In particular, I want to look at the fourth question. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Why would we make that vow? Why would that matter? Because Christianity is not practiced in isolation. Christianity is practiced, it's cultivated, it's developed in and through community. If you've ever read Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he puts it this way. He says, Christianity means community. That's what it means. Christianity means community in and through Jesus Christ. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, you can just listen. This is Ephesians. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4. He says, there's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Okay, what's Paul saying? He's saying, just as there is one God, there is one church. And we, as his people, as one church, we are called to be united as one. So much so that your calling to the church is integral to your identity as a Christian. First and foremost, you are saved by Jesus Christ. That's your identity. You are a son or daughter. But second, your new identity as a Christian is now brother or sister. You are now called not just as an individual into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but through and in Jesus Christ, you are now called to be in relationship with one another, so much so that you are now brothers and sisters. And here's the kicker. You don't get to control who your brothers and sisters are, just like your real families. You are called to be in community with a bunch of people that if I pressed you hard enough, not probably in public, that you probably wouldn't ordinarily be friends with. And if you look around this room tonight, 
even a, a group this small, a little subset of our church, we don't even all know each other. And yet we're called to love one another profoundly and deeply, passionately. Why? Because that's how Christ loves us. In the same way that he loves you and me, we are called to love one another, to be in community with one another. And the fact that we are a bunch of broken, misfit, screwed up people called together to be the body of Christ is good news for an unbelieving world full of broken, messed up, misfit people. Because anyone who walks through these doors and reads those words that all are welcome here, as they get to know us and see that we're not all that special, they know that they belong here too. First, you must see that we are called as a church to be in community with one another for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of what we believe. So much so that you have a new identity, brother, sister in Christ. Second, this is what I want you to see. The church is a people united together in work. We'll do the rest of these a little bit more quickly. Jesus moves on in verse 22. He says, the glory of you who have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. Okay, why are we all called to be one? In order that the world would see Jesus Christ. We're called not just to be a community, but a community who works together for the sake of the gospel. What's our work? To make disciples. To fulfill the Great Commission. This church, for 25 years, has had the same mission statement. To extend the transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ to Dallas and the world. That's why we exist. How do we extend the kingdom? Through worship, through community, through the way that we are called to mission. That's our work. That's what we do. That's what we're called to be together. And here's the kicker. We're God's plan to fulfill that. When he gave the Great Commission, he had one plan. There's a plan A. There's no plan B. And here's his plan. The church. A bunch of people who are very ordinary, called to do extraordinary things for the sake of the gospel. And you think, how could he call me to do that? Well, remember our line, who we come from. The people that we read in the Bible really broken people. And God, by his glory, has used every single one of them. We're his plan, and we are called to work together. Dorothy Sayers, uh, phenomenal, if you ever get a chance to read her, um, so ahead of her time, like so many of the writers back then. She's one of the inklings, and this is what she said. She said, the church must remember this, that every maker and every worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade not outside of it. In other words, whatever you think that your job is, she's saying that your job in and of itself is to be used for the work of the kingdom. That you don't work for the kingdom here at church on a Sunday and then leave the next day and go do your other stuff, but everything you do Monday through Friday on Saturday, all of it, whether you're a banker, a lawyer, a teacher, a doctor, whatever it is that you do, God has called you to use that for his work, to extend the kingdom, to extend the gospel. 
The only way that this works is that we do it together. If you remember, after Jesus died, what happened to his disciples? They were afraid, and they scattered. We have to learn to work together as the church in order to see the gospel advance. Let me show you what I mean. Just as much as I have had an issue with the church, I've had an issue with Dallas. I know, shocker. Um, It's not my first choice of places to live. Uh, I've tried to leave a lot. Um, And not since I've been married and have children. That would mean I'm also towing them along. Uh, But I'd much rather be in a place like Boston or New York or Seattle or L.A. That's where I wanted to go. A place where, you know, at least you knew these were the Christians and these were not the Christians. That's what I wanted to do. And I, quite frankly, I just, you know, what, what more could there be done in Dallas? But the longer I've lived here, the longer I've served in ministry here, I've learned that Dallas is in desperate need of the gospel. Isn't it? I want to read you something. This is from D Magazine. The article is entitled, Is Dallas the Most Christian City in the Nation? That's a great question. Two sides of Dallas, the spiritual and the worldly, seem hard to reconcile. Dallas and its suburbs hold around 1,200 churches, roughly two-thirds of which could be classified as staunchly within the most conservative strands of Christianity. You could certainly make a case that Dallas is the most Christian city in the country, the one with the largest and most fervent percentage of active worshipers. And there's no doubt that Christianity of a conservative stripe gives Dallas much of its civic flavor. Just as New York has a Jewish flavor, New Orleans a Catholic flavor. That's what he's saying. He's saying that, well, I mean, think about Dallas and Dallas is the buckle of the Bible belt, right? That Christianity and what it is, I mean, home of the megachurch, that it shapes who we are as a city. But it goes on. At the same time, Dallas is a city that worships success, especially financial success, a city lurching without grace and a slow of social problems, a divorce rate almost the highest in the country, child abuse and teenage pregnancy rates almost as high. You could easily make a case for Dallas being the most worldly city in America as the most Christian. An amazing statement. You think it's true? When do you think that was written? Any guesses? 1985. Has it changed? We are here for a reason. And I would even argue that we are right here, literally, at this location, at Wycliffe and Oaklawn, for a reason. That as this city grows and changes, more companies are moving here, There is literally an apartment building being built on every single corner right now. All of these people moving from all over the nation. We exist for a reason. As the people of God, as his church, to proclaim the gospel. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that we have been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. He doesn't put a period there. He continues. 
We have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light in order that we might proclaim the excellencies of him. We've been called to work and to work together. Third, we've been called united together in worship. Jesus says this in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. All right, I want you to see what Jesus is praying for because you might miss it. Jesus just prayed that you and I might be with him, that we would be present with him so much so that we would see his glory. One day we know that that promise, that prayer will come true forever that we will spend eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ and we will see his glory forever. But this side of heaven, where do we see that? Where is it that we can be present with Jesus so much so that we would actually see a glimpse, a glimmer, a shadow of his glory? I would argue that it's when we gather together as the people of God every single Sunday morning in corporate worship. It is in those times together and we come together where we sing songs. We go through our liturgy where we hear the preached word that we see just a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ and we are ushered into his presence with one another. That's why we do what we do. That's why we come and sing. That's why we have a church service. And yet, if you think about it, so often that can be lost on us. I would argue that there is no greater display of unity in the church than in corporate worship. There is also no greater display of disunity in the church than in corporate worship. You see, it's possible to worship worship, isn't it? possible to worship music or a particular style. And C.S. Lewis knew this very well even back when he wrote Screwtape Letters. If you've ever read it, there's this amazing exchange. If you know this, the book, it's about a demon pulling alongside a younger demon and trying to help that demon tempt Christians. And he comes to this younger demon and this is what he says to him. He says, the church itself is our greatest enemy. But the church that we see as people is going to be their greatest ally. And this is what he says. He says, all that we see as Christians is a half-finished sham of a building. And when we go inside, we see a local grocer, be me, with an oily expression on their face, hope not, bustling up to offer one shiny little book and then another book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands and one shabby little book, that's this one, containing corrupt text with a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. You see, Lewis recognized that we as people will be tempted not to see the glory of corporate worship and what it's really called to be when we gather on a Sunday. That when we come together as people, we can easily be distracted. 
we easily can miss the whole point of why we gather in the first place. And so it's no wonder that so many churches over the years have literally split over worship. And so how do we do this? How do we worship together in unity? We must not mistake, right, the worship of God for the God of our worship. In other words, we must really understand what we are doing when we come together and worship as God's people. I think Peter puts it best. Peter, 1 Peter, was written to a bunch of Christians in persecution. This is the early church. And I want you to consider this. What do you think the early church was like? What do you think their worship gatherings were like? What do you think church must have been like before there were organs and microphones and guitars and hymns even? Before there was the church's one foundation, what did they sing? What did they argue about? See, I think the persecuted church can teach us a lot about corporate worship. Do you think the underground church in China ever argues about music? What instruments to use? They just want to be together. I saw this firsthand in Morocco, a country where it's illegal to be a Christian, and you see them coming together with songs that really are not very well done. They just want to be together. And do you think God honors their worship? He does. I think sometimes our fights about worship are really first world problems, if you know what I mean. And as you consider what it must have been like in the early church, this is what Peter says. Peter says, you yourselves are like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's just a couple things I want you to see here and then we'll end. The first is this. True worship is centered on Jesus Christ who is the cornerstone. Peter says that we are to be built on Jesus who is the cornerstone and many churches put a lot of different cornerstones as their foundation. Christ, the worship of Christ, is all we are called to be, all we are called to do. But the second thing I also do not want you to miss, and it's this. You yourselves, Peter says, are like living stones. In the Old Testament, the church, the temple was literally, the presence of God was in a temple, in a building built with stone. In the new covenant, now, the church is no longer a building. God is not present in a place. He's present in a people. That's you and that's me. And each one of us is an important, vital stone. Praise brick upon brick upon brick to make up the church. Now, what would happen to this room if we began to chisel away at its walls and remove the stones? We get a little drafty. The more stones we remove, those walls would begin to crumble. Each one of you is vital, vital for the public worship of God. Why? Because you matter to Jesus and you matter to one another. That's why we do this together. 
That's why when we sing, we are actually singing one to God, but we're singing to one another. We are reminding each other through song of the gospel. That's why as we read responsively through our liturgy, there's a call and a response. We are together rehearsing the truths that we desperately need to cling to in this life. Every single one of you matters. You matter in corporate worship. Because when we gather together to worship God together, our worship spills over into this community. It does. Which is why we send you out every single Sunday with a benediction. The last thing I want you to see very quickly is this. The church is a people united together in Jesus Christ. Jesus ends with this prayer. He says, even though the world does not know you, Father, I know you. And these know you that you've sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. We have been united to Jesus Christ, and in our unity to him, we've been called to be united to one another. None of this is possible without the union of Christ. Jesus died, and in his death, we have died. Jesus rose again, and in his resurrection, we have been raised with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. That's Christ's prayer for his church, that we would be so united to him that we could not help but love one another. How do we do this? Well, we do it in community. We do it in our work, through our mission, and we do it in worship. So let me pray for you. Let's pray for us. Pray that we would be the body of Christ. And let's stand and let's sing together to worship the one who has unified us to himself and us to one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for John, who recorded these wonderful words of Christ's prayer. Father, we pray that these things would be true for us. Tonight, for us in this room, we pray, Father, that you would begin to stir in us a love and affection for your church. That even beginning tonight, that we would love the people in this room. And those who are not represented here, those who are not able to come, that we would love well. In our small groups, in our Sunday morning communities, in our Bible studies. And the way that we serve down in the nursery. Father, the way that we serve by extending the kingdom. God, would you move in us and begin to show us what it means to be your church, to be the body of Christ. Help us to fulfill these vows we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.